I'm Linda Yu. I'm a fellow in economics at St. Edmund Hall in the University of Oxford. Uh, I'm Martin Slater. I'm also a fellow in economics at St. Edmund Hall. And I'm Jonathan Mickey. I'm president of Kellogg College. Today in this podcast, we are going to take a, a look at the prospects for recovery from this recession. We'll start by taking an assessment of the British economy on the back of a very notable budget um, that's been presented for this uh, fiscal year. And then we'll broaden it out and assess what's happening globally to see if uh, economic recovery is on the horizon and touch on some of the um, assessments made by the International Monetary Fund as well as um, taking stock of the measures from the G20 summit. And so I think if, um, if I could ask one of you to just start us off with how the British economy is faring and whether or not uh, we really are looking at um, a recovery. Yes, the, the budget was uh, presented as a, a budget for growth and predictions for, for growth next year and so on. So I think it, it's uh, useful to take a step back and just remind ourselves of, of um, the scale of the, the problems we're in because the, the large numbers of, of uh, borrowing the scale of downturn globally has almost numbed us into thinking that uh, the current predictions are, are run of the mill. What was interesting about the budget is it really was confirmation that this does seem to be the worst recession uh, since the 1930s and linked with the International Monetary Fund report I know we'll come on to later on the global scale it does seem to be confirmation that that this is the worst um, recession globally um, since the 1930s so I think it's important to make that point um, fast. In terms of how, how long the uh, recession will continue for, uh, whether these green shoots of recovery uh, really will um, deliver, obviously there are a uh, difference of um, uh, forecasts. The UK government is forecasting uh, recovery next year, but it's quite, first it's quite weak, and secondly, not all the forecasters agree. And again, we'll come on to the IMF's forecast, which, which is that the recession will, will continue into um, the next year. So, I mean, by way of opening, I'd say that the, the picture's um, rather mixed. It's a, it is a prediction for um, recovery and uh, growth next year, but firstly, that's from a, a very um, low base. The, the economy um, across the world and in the UK is going to fall quite steeply this year. And secondly, it's quite uncertain the degree to which there'll be recovery next year. Yes, I, I think there's a, a big difference between the financial sectors of the economy and the real sectors of the economy. Um, the movement through the crisis for the financial sector is, is considerably in advance of what's happening to the real economy. So. In the last few months, we went through the, the serious crisis phase for banks and the policy responses have been uh, largely effective in, in getting us over the most dangerous part of that. And you can see uh, news now emerging of banks patchily but gradually beginning to improve their results. But the movement through the real economy is, is at a much earlier stage and um, you know this employment is clearly going to get worse for a good few quarters uh, from now uh, even if the current um, stimulus measures begin to take effect from from the current time. Yes, I think um, this recovery has to be premised on financial stability. Um, there wasn't much which was said about it by the Chancellor. 
And I suppose, um, generally speaking, the markets are looking at the banking system and thinking that there are some signs um, that um, the banking system perhaps has stabilized. I suppose the big contrary voice to this is by the International Monetary Fund, who argues that banks around the world, including British banks, have only written down around a third of their actual losses, meaning we're still going to see financial uh, write-downs and losses throughout this year. And I suppose the second reason why recovery might be slightly later than what the British Chancellor um, has projected is because a lot of the banking system is clearly hinged on the health of the American banking system. And the American banking rescue plan so far has had mixed results. And also the major part of the plan, the PIP, um, the private-public um, um, investment partnership doesn't take effect until September. So we are not going to see the end of the cleanup of the banking system until at least um, the autumn of this year. But that being said, the downturn um, in the economy projected for this year for Britain, I think, probably is about right, um, given that you're not going to see a, um, a finishing off of um, the banking crisis until later on this year. So when the Chancellor revised his forecast um, from around a negative 1% contraction, which is what he said last November in the pre-budget report, down to negative 3.5%, um, that probably is pretty realistic and does meet um, generally the consensus forecast on how bad it will be in Britain. And if that were true, this dwarfs the negative 2% contraction in the early 80s, which cons was considered to be the worst recession for the British economy, and of course has terrible echoes of the uh, rescue of the British economy in the late 70s um, by the IMF. Um, and certainly this would mean the worst recession um, since World War II, the worst recession in peacetime. I think where the Chancellor's forecasts are a little bit more optimistic than others, is certainly in his growth forecast for next year and then thereafter. Uh, the Chancellor's predicting an over 1% growth in the economy next year. Most consensus forecasters think it's going to be around half of that. And the IMF again actually predicts recession next year for Britain. And um, I suppose even more optimistic perhaps is the Chancellor thinks that by 2011, Britain is going to jump um, and exceed its trend growth rate, which is two and three quarters percent, and start to grow at a very impressive um, three and a half percent. So it may well be the economy turns a corner um, at some point by the end of this year, but I suppose the shape of the recovery and how growth looks in the next couple of years um, is, a, is a much more difficult task um, to assess. And I, I think the growth forecast clearly has implications for the state of public finances in Britain because the budget projections of the level of borrowing hinges on, is premised on the growth rates that he's expecting. And I suppose that's um, something else we, we ought to look at next, which is, so the economy does recover, but what kind of borrowing are we going to look at over the next few years and what does it mean? On the question about whether the economy will recover next year, one interesting point which doesn't seem to have been picked up uh, at all is the government's intention to raise VAT again at the end of this year, at the end of 2009, which would be exactly at the point at which it will be unclear whether in 2010 the economy is going to be able to recover 
or is going to carry on sliding downwards as the International Monetary Fund has, has predicted. So it will be interesting to, to see over the coming months and then crucially in the autumn when the Chancellor has to make uh, his uh, annual statement about government finances, whether they actually do stick to that intention to, to raise VAT. Because on the one hand, as you say, borrowing is levels are, are very high, so there's going to be a pressure to raise taxes. On the other hand, if the economy still is faltering and looks like it may continue to have negative growth in 2010, then raising VAT then could actually exacerbate the problem. And of course, this is the basic point about Keynesian economics, is if it did exacerbate the problem and make the recession worse, then tax revenues would be lower and the deficit might actually expand still further. So whether or not VAT will be raised, as was said it would be in the budget, will be be interesting to to keep an eye on. Yes, and the debt levels are... Uh, as projected by the Chancellor, I suppose the, the most significant thing about them is that they are very, very long-term bad projections uh, and they will be very bad, almost irrespective of whether the real economy does indeed uh, successfully pick up in the way the Chancellor does expect. Uh, so the future for for debt is is obviously pretty bleak indeed i mean whatever the recovery comes along with yeah and i yeah i i think when we look at the projections um <laughs> at the moment britain has a stock of debt of around 730 billion pounds and over the next two years alone um, the government's planning to borrow um, over 300 billion pounds, which means that um, by the end of next year, 2010, Britain will have a stock of debt of a trillion pounds. And that is considerable. Um, And just to pick up on a a couple of points which were made, um, the Chancellor's projecting um, a minor fiscal stimulus this year. Because of the severity of the recession, he has put in place minor measures, minor in the sense of being pretty small scale, a few billion here, a few billion there, but nothing like the 20 billion that he announced last November already. Um, So he's spending some money on helping the unemployed, helping savers, helping um, homeowners. Um, But because he's projecting a recovery next year, he's actually projecting fiscal tightening from next year onwards and onwards to the end of his forecasted projection period, which is uh, nearly a decade from now. Um, But if the economy doesn't recover next year, it's very hard to see how the government will tighten fiscal policy, because that would only make um, the recession worse. So the growth forecasts are uh, looking optimistic for next year, but I think we may well see an entirely different type of budget uh, um, if, um, if, if they do prove to be optimistic and we find that um, the, there's, the government isn't going to tighten fiscal policy um, during um, a downturn. Yes, in terms of how they'll get growth going if it doesn't start automatically when they're so restricted in terms of how much money they can put in because of the debt levels, it may be that they are going to have to become more activist, more interventionist. And there are signs of this, obviously, we talk about the return of industrial policy or new industrial policy, new jobs, and the whole Green New Deal. Um, And I think there, uh, it's important to link the short-term measures, which are are, um, vitally needed to get the economy going with the long-term measures needed for the safety of the planet and uh, and ecological um, 
grounds because the economy, world economy has gone through sort of long swings of 20 or 30 years uh, of relatively fast expansion, relatively um, slow growth um, depression in the past and often the, the long periods of, of uh, recovery and growth have been around a whole host of new technologies which have developed and then been been um, led to mass production and new infrastructures uh, um, invested in across economies to to meet the, those new um, consumer goods, whether it's motor cars and so on. And it, it could well be that the Green New Deal could actually um, lead into a, a, a whole era, 20-year generation um, um, of economic expansion across the globe in, in quite a, a different direction. Um, but that won't necessarily happen automatically, and, and the sort of figures um, and initiatives and that so far maybe aren't enough. I mean, certainly they're, they're dwarfed by what's being done in some other countries like Korea. Um, but it may be that if the UK economy doesn't recover next year, as has been suggested, that, that that's the way governments of, of whatever colour will, will have to go to um, be more interventionist in, in the um, money they put in the economy to get things moving. But, but one of the things the figures, I think, do illustrate very clearly is how, how little room for manoeuvre governments do have in terms of explicit fiscal stimulus. Yes, last year um, there was um, an injection of, I think, what, 25 billion. Um, but even a, a figure of 25 billion is relatively small compared to the indebtedness levels that we're talking about at the moment. And uh, across the world, when people look at the fiscal stimuluses put into place in different countries, one will see that, that they are, of course, tend to be only of the order of 1, 2 or 3 percent of GDP. Um, you know, it's fairly clear, I think, from what the Chancellor said, that uh, the idea of at least putting up measures explicitly as a fiscal stimulus, I think, instead of, as perhaps as Jonathan was saying, um, directing what one might think would be otherwise desirable measures, which may also help in this kind of thing. Um, now, it, it seems that it's very unlikely that a government like the UK is going to be able to put up uh, a further explicit fiscal stimulus, uh, as indeed several commentators have, have made that point in the last few weeks. I think the Bank of England has warned against yeah. um, similar measures, um, and I think that does suggest um, how bad the, the bond levels are going to be. The, the government, the pre-budget report, they've pretty much stuck to what they said they were going to spend on in terms of the stimulus mm. um, packages. So the $25 billion over two years amounts to just about 1.4% of GDP. The measures announced in the budget itself adds to that, adds another probably, it's thought, about five billion or so. Um, so the entire stimulus, therefore, for the next couple of years is 2% of GDP. This is considerably smaller than what the Americans are putting in, um, and it's a lot smaller than what the Chinese and the Japanese and the Koreans are putting in. But because, well, the Americans are a different story, but the other countries putting in big stimuluses is because they're surplus economies. They actually have the capacity to be able to put in more stimulus uh, measures um, and uh, to, to try and fuel their recovery. Um, although I suppose we don't want to start talking about Japan, that is a different uh, kettle of fish. Um, their stimulus measures are going to push their debt to GDP ratio up to 198%. 
Um, and uh, I must say that sounds, that sounds absolutely terrible. But bring us back to sort of British um, debt levels. Um, you know, can, can an economy like Britain, which is not the United States with its reserve currency status, meaning that mm. the dollar tends to be very desirable um, as an international investment vehicle, so the Americans find it cheaper to borrow. Um, is Britain in danger of returning to becoming the uh, pariah on global uh, you know, government debt markets. Um, you know, can this economy sustain a debt to GDP ratio, which, according to the government's projections, will be seventy nine percent of GDP um, by twenty fifteen? One um, um, bright spot in terms of the relative position of the UK economy, of course, is that uh, all the other economies are uh, in similarly in a similar position with the global recession in that uh, debt levels have gone up and will go up, you know, in, in almost all the industrialised countries. Um, I, mean, I think two other factors are, are worth thinking about in terms of the long-term debt and whether you can service a debt, because that's the, that's, it should be said that's the real problem and danger with letting debt levels go this, this high. If you can't afford the interest payments each year, then you have to borrow to pay the interest payments, and so the debt becomes um, starts polluting out of control. But then two key factors are what interest rate you're paying on, on the debt, and also what's happening to inflation. Um, what's happening to interest rates? I mean, that, that's interesting because I think some people thought, well, maybe interest rates, you know, cut so low because of the worst recession since the 1930s, and then they'll um, raise rapidly, you know, for a sign of uh, inflation. But it maybe there'll be a, an inbuilt requirement, really, on governments to try to keep uh, interest rates low for quite some time because of the danger of higher interest rates, meaning that these debt levels just become. Um, unsupportable, that the interest payments would just be um, too expensive. But then the other side of that coin is, is inflation, um, where at least on, on um, one le le measure of uh, inflation in the UK, um, the retail price index, we're actually in negative territory already, you know, rather than um, prices rising, prices are actually um, falling already. And obviously that's good for us consumers if, if prices are falling, but one of the problems and dangers for the economy as a whole uh, with prices falling, is it means if you've got a debt which is generally fixed in money terms, if you owe someone you know, £100 or if a government owes someone a trillion pounds, um, and if all prices fall, then in real terms that debt is, has doubled. Uh, and put conversely, how economies have sometimes got out of high levels of debt historically has been when inflation has been relatively high, maybe 10% a year, 15% a year for 10, 20 years, and it can um, um, erode, reduce the sort of real level of, of um, debt. So looking at you know, how the UK economy and indeed other economies are going to be able to pay the interest payments on these huge levels of debt, I mean, two very important factors are whether interest rates can be kept low and um, whether prices are allowed to fall, whether inflation is allowed to um, stay negative, or whether actually um, governments will, and central banks will have an interest in actually getting inflation um, back up uh, to, to positive levels, actually have inflation as a, as a good thing rather than a bad thing. Mm. Yes, sadly, I think the, I mean, historically, uh, the way governments tend to get out of large indebtedness like this, uh, really two ways. One is inflation, uh, and the other is that one just waits around hoping for the economy to turn up. Uh, 
clearly the UK has had rather higher levels of indebtedness at some times, particularly the, the years immediately after the Second World War. Um, and largely that did inflate away over the post-war period. Um, the Clinton administration managed to reduce its indebtedness again largely by the good fortune that the economy picked up uh, at the right sort of time. So I think the, the history of, of, of large indebtedness really being got down by some determined and uh, successful government policy isn't a, isn't a terribly optimistic one. Um, yes, I think there, there is a danger that obviously that the, the governmental finances are, are running the same kind of risk as personal finances ran in the last few years. You know, if one looks back at the, the problems of personal indebtedness um, over, say, the last five, ten years, of course, there were Cassandras who, who did say that oh, the, the indebtedness is getting out of control, and always the, the optimistic response was that, well, yes, of course, people are more indebted than they were in the past, but the market seemed to be happy with this. Uh, interest rates are low, there's a great deal of liquidity, lots of suppliers of finance, and, and that's okay. And of course, as we've seen, that's okay <laughs> so, long as, uh, so long as the markets continue to think that way. But it's very easy suddenly to hit a problem where interest rates go up, the liquidity miraculously evaporates, and of course the government is getting itself into the same kind of situation at the moment. Uh, it looks as though the government is not having too much difficulty financing this kind of level of borrowing. Interest rates are very low. The markets don't have very much better alternatives to put their money into at the moment. So, so, so far, uh, no great problems have emerged. But it's, it's indeed quite possible, as Jonathan says, that supposing in some time, in a year or two, interest rates go rapidly up, uh, and the markets uh, get considerably more jittery about sovereign uh, indebtedness, uh, that the UK government would then essentially get itself into a very similar problem <laughs> to the one that Northern Rock got itself into, where it finds itself very difficult to roll over this uh, large stock of debt that uh, is inevitably going to sort of to get up to these levels. Yeah, no, I'd agree with all of that. Um, I think if interest rates went to, say, 10%, which was the level the British were servicing its debt in the 1980s, we would have real problems. And the guild markets apparently shot up um, with these new borrowing figures when they were revealed. So the 10-year guild, um, now the interest rate on it is 4%. Um, with a growth rate of under that, the rule of thumb of having your growth rate exceed your interest payments, making debt... Um, affordable um, is usually what we use for developing countries and I'm slightly concerned um, that uh, Britain's going to uh, uh, struggle um, with, um, with the, uh, the expense of, um, of interest, of debt interest payments. So last year's um, debt interest payments were around £34 billion which exceeds the entire um, defence budget. Um, so we're not there yet, um, so long as interest rates um, stay low but I think 
that is something that um, is going to matter a great deal. And I also agree, deflation is another problem. I mentioned earlier that Japan has a massive debt-to-GDP ratio. That's in part due to deflation, um, because the real value of indebtedness keeps rising when you're in a deflationary um, stance. And I suppose I would add one more factor to, um, to how governments deal with indebtedness. Um, I mean, one way to deal with it is, is through inflation and more specifically monetizing the debt. So you essentially have um, guilt on offer at the moment of about 220 billion pounds that have to be sold. The Bank of England is actually going to buy up 150 billion pounds worth of indebtedness, not just guilt, but also corporate bonds and, and commercial paper. So in a sense, the Bank of England is going to inflate the economy by 10% um, this year, and that will certainly keep um, inflation um, high in, this, in the system. Um, and I suppose that would be uh, another area that the, uh, the, uh, the Bank of England is very concerned that its attempts to revitalize the credit market doesn't get viewed as a way of, of inflating away um, government um, indebtedness. Um, and I think that's um, certainly something which markets, uh, I would imagine, are, are very concerned about. Um, and I, and uh, talking about um, indebtedness and uh, comparing it to other countries, I think it's a nice segue to look at whether or not a global recovery is also um, on the horizon. So part of the uh, reason why the growth forecast by the Chancellor was so optimistic was that he was relying on the global economy, um, pulling the British economy, um, helping it to come out of um, recession. And he made the point that Britain is a very open economy, which is true. Um, and he also made the point that the world economy is expected to double in the next 20 years, which will help the British economy. I suppose a couple of issues I would probably raise there is that doubling figure is premised on the global economy growing at over 3%, which is indeed possible because that's about what the global economy has been growing at in the post-war period. But whether or not it'll grow at that rate in the next couple of years, I think the IMF's latest world economic outlook certainly doesn't think that. They think the global economy is poised to contract for the very first time in the post-war period this year. And next year, growth in the global economy will be less than 2%. Now, 2% positive growth sounds good, but when you're talking about the global economy, typically any growth less than 3% is considered to be a global recession because growth rate of 3% and over takes into account the population growth in the world. So according to the IMF, the world isn't going to recover until 2011. So the immediate reliance on the world as an engine for the Chancellor might also be problematic. Yes, and at the G20, um talks and agreements, all the, all the um, discussion and, and debate in the media was about which path the world would go down to try to get the world economy going again. Would it be fiscal stimulus or would it be regulation of the banks to sort out um, um, the mess? And, and, and the outcome was sort of a bit of both. People saying, yes, well, we needed some um, fiscal stimulus, but it was no good just going back to the state of affairs that created the problem in the first place and there would have to be proper um, regulation, including clamping down on tax havens, which would bring in, in more tax revenues and, and so on. Um, so, and what will be important is to see what happens, you know, on both of those fronts. 
Um, I mean, the fiscal stimulus has been announced by a number of countries, you know, you know America, or Korea, doing serious uh, uh, amounts of, of stimulus. Other economies, though, to be fair to them, Germany and so on, having quite um, quite uh, um, good inbuilt um, automatic stabilizers. Um, so actually, um, um, automatically giving generous unemployment pay, etc., so that uh, they are actually giving a fiscal stimulus, although the media was, was sort of portraying them as, as sort of in the other camp. Um, but in terms of regulating the, the um, banks, climbing down, clamping down on the, on the behaviour that, that created the um, problem in the first place, clamping down effectively on, on um, the global uh, tax havens, you know, including whole countries, <laughs> such as uh, uh, Switzerland, and, and how much um, extra uh, tax revenue that will bring bring into um, the major countries. I mean, a lot of that is still unknown. You know, the extent to which that will be successful and, and when when it will start kicking in. Yes, I, I think the the extent of the recovery of the world as a whole is is one that that makes uh, the forecasting of the recovery of particular regions rather difficult because. What, what, what we're seeing is that different regions are moving through this problem at different rates. You, you've got the US, which was first to hit problems and therefore might be first to uh, move out of it in, in the end, followed by the UK, then by Europe, then, should we say, emerging Far East economies. Um, the US problems, of course, largely start in the financial sector and they move through to the effect on domestic consumption through consumer indebtedness, and pretty much the same is true of the UK. Um, the problems of countries like Germany, and indeed even more so the Far East and emerging countries, are, are, are not so much questions of domestic consumption, but their, their problems emerged at a, at a later stage when their exports uh, effectively collapsed. So, if you're looking at it from the point of view of the US and the UK, you're thinking, well, yes, maybe we might be beginning to, to see the, the beginning of the end of this. But this probably heavily depends on one's assumption about things not going to get any worse in Europe and the Far East. Uh, um, if that happens, then one's possibly in for another round of, uh, of crises. Um, and similarly, if you're looking at this from the point of the Far Eastern and the, the European exporting economies, then you're probably fairly heavily dependent on a, a view that the US is going to improve and that's going to stop your exports going down any further. So there's quite a, a serious interrelationship here, which uh, could go well or could go badly. I think that um, sums up the G20 summit. Um, I think there was a recognition the world is extremely interconnected. And in fact, when we see what they agreed at the summit um, as a precursor to global recovery, since that was the aim, you get all these countries in a room, they represent 90% of the world's GDP, what they're going to do will have an effect clearly on how the global economy is going to fare. There was a lot of talk about having um, a new round of stimulus measures, so discretionary stimulus spending, as the IMF and the Americans were pushing for, not counting things like automatic stabilizers, the parts of fiscal policy that rise automatically in a recession, with which Germany has a great deal because of the generous welfare state. And uh, we know that uh, that wasn't uh, a result of the summit. There was just very strong opposition against that. 
um, from the Germans and the French who um, held their own press conference <laughs> to discuss the things they thought were going to be important. Um, and I suppose my view on that had always been countries are at different stages in this crisis. They will take measures which are suitable for their own national economy. So even though it's true that the IMF projected that if all the countries coordinated when they stimulated their economies, part of that spills over into another country's exports and you would get a boost to global growth. They expect that boosts whatever spending is done by around a third. So it would have increased global growth by a third more than if countries had just spent um, on their own timeline. So, so that being said, that, that didn't come off as a success. But I think what, the, what they did achieve was probably realistically what you would expect with a gathering of countries. They would agree to put money into things which are actually joint efforts. So things like putting more money into the International Monetary Fund, $750 billion, of which $250 billion was an increase in special drawing rights, which are this unit of account the IMF uses, which is premised on different currencies, um, four different currencies. And of course, that's the global version of quantitative easing. Special drawing rights, which are the world's currencies, increased tenfold um, by this measure. Um, and the other 500 billion, half a trillion dollars, were essentially credit lines being extended by the G20 countries to be put into the IMF to lend to emerging economies particularly, which were in trouble. So they were trying to forestall another round of banking crisis in places like Eastern Europe and um, Central Asia, the Baltic states, which would in turn drive another banking crisis in the West because a lot of Western banks are clearly exposed um, in those markets, particularly um, in Eastern Europe. And the IMF's already bailed out over a dozen countries since this crisis um, began. Um, so, and, and of course, then the rest of the money, um, the rest that make up the $1.1 trillion pledged at the summit was about $250 billion to the World Bank and um, other development banks to facilitate trade credit. So again, it's credit guarantees to try and help exporters um, which are suffering from the credit crunch. And then I suppose the final bit of that is about 100 billion, um, about 106 billion um, in developmental aid, 6 billion of which uh, might come about through IMF sale of gold. The reason I'm going into these figures is that aside from about the 106 billion dollars, the rest of it isn't real money into the economy. They're credit lines and credit guarantees, which may be drawn down and may not be repaid. Um, but in terms of a global stimulus, that really wasn't probably um, what the Americans and the British were looking for. But what these measures do do is, of course, try and safeguard against the second round of um, banking crisis, which would then plunge the rest of the world back into another uh, set of financial um, problems, which then, of course, forestalls um, global um, recovery. Yes, in terms of the state of the financial institutions globally, and of course, um, well, a lot of more money has been pledged for the International Monetary Fund, and a lot of people see the IMF as part of the problem rather than solution, and there has been an acknowledgement that it does need to be reformed. Um, but, you know, we have to wait and see what, what if anything, is delivered on that. In, in terms of the U.S. financial institutions um, and the consensus, which seemed to have been uh, de developed around the G20 summit, that, that um, things had to move forward rather than just go back to how things were um, when this crisis was generated. And it's interesting that some of the U.S. financial institutions are, are trying to 
pay back the money they got off the American government so that they can go back to their old ways and not have government interference in the way that they operate and the bonuses they, they pay themselves. And in fact, the US government refuses to take that money unless they get some guarantees as to how they're going to behave. In terms of the UK, um, it was interesting in, in the budget speech, the Chancellor did refer to the need to encourage diversity of ownership in financial institutions, and in particular to encourage mutuals, mutual financial institutions, which was historically an important part of UK financial institutions, um, but there was a lot of demutualisation um, during the Thatcher year of the 1980s, where the mutual organisations, which basically took people's money and, and uh, savings and then lent it back to them to, to buy houses, they were turned into private banks, and even the ones who remained as mutuals were, were encouraged to uh, to participate in these sort of innovative financial um, instruments. So I, mean, I think in terms of the UK financial institutions, that would be very welcome if, if government actually um, delivered on that and encouraging mutual um, organisations. Thinking about um, the global picture, do either of you think that uh, we are looking at a global recovery um, in the next um, couple of years? And it's a big question, but uh, I think it's certainly one uh, worth trying to contemplate? Hmm. Well, I think it is difficult for, because of what I said earlier. I, I think things could go seriously in either direction. These problems have been a long time in their gestation and they will take a long time to recapitalize the global financial system um, and to uh, bring the effects of that back through onto the real economy. So uh, you know, I wouldn't be looking for a, a very sudden global uh, upturn, uh, say just running through the next year and, uh, and then hoping that the, um, the global economy will resume a fairly rosy path. In the long term, of course, you do still have, on the optimistic side, there are these very big drivers of China and India which in the long term, you know, one cannot but believe that they will generate a lot of demand uh, for the world economy. Um, but the timing of this is, uh, is as always, very difficult to, to call. Yes, I think it is very important to um, acknowledge and, and stress that these um, things are by their very nature uncertain and not just unknown but unknowable um, because um, a lot of economic activity um, depends on on um, confidence and people's expectations about what other um, uh, consumers are going to be doing, what other businesses are going to be doing in terms of investment. So it is very, very hard to predict. In the best of all possible worlds, it's hard to predict. It's, uh, it's ironic in the current state of affairs where politicians around the world always start off saying what unprecedented situation we're in and then give their forecast and when asked, but where do you get that from? They say, oh, well, look like what happened last time, we recovered quite well. <laughs> so the point is this is unprecedented. And uh, as Martin says, in, in two particular ways, I mean, firstly, the banking system and financial institutions have wrecked themselves, um, so we're not just coming out of a, a recession in a normal way. Something's got to be done about that. And secondly, given that this is the, the worst global recession since the 1930s, there will be large-scale unemployment, which itself then has a dampening effect on people's expectations because people considering investing in particular consumer goods industries will think, well, you know, is consumption really going to rise when we've got this, these high levels of unemployment? So 
Um, no doubt there will be a recovery uh, sooner or later, um, but those those factors that the uh, state the financial institutions are in and high levels of un unemployment um, pose a danger of it being a, a weak recovery. And it's always important to remember that that just because a recovery started doesn't need mean that it will be self-sustaining. There's always a danger of it falling back into recession or even being pushed into recession by by um, bad policy decisions. That was actually done during the um, last global um, recession or depression in the 1930s. Um, by 1937, when people governments thought things were going okay, they then cut back spending and increased taxes and actually um, created a, another um, mini-recession. And one other point in terms of the, the global economy and recovery is quite interesting to reflect upon in terms of the, the fact that uh, inflation's actually gone negative, prices are now falling. Um, in the old days, economists thought that was uh, that would be all good news, and indeed that's how the textbook showed that economies would, would um, get themselves out of um, trouble if, if you weren't selling your goods where your prices would fall and then you'd, you'd sell more and uh, you'd pull yourself out of recession. And in fact, that was one of the misapprehensions that... Um, that Keynes uh, challenged in his book in 1936, The General Theory, that was one of the central points he was, he was getting across, that actually, although it all looks very well in theory, that's not actually how the world works. And one of the reasons was, it's not very easy just to cut all prices and wages by 50%, um, because, well, A, it's difficult to get prices to, to fall in some cases, but secondly, people are nervous about accepting a 50% wage cut. Apart from anything else, they're not really sure whether the prices will fall by 50% or if other workers will accept a 50% wage cut. Um, so if I mean, um, inflation is predicted to, to go to negative 3% in the UK, if, if um, inflation actually became uh, significantly negative uh, in the UK and other countries, and the response was then to try to cut wages to keep them uh, constant in real terms, that's a very difficult thing to do and was one of the things Keynes was was um, warning about. That's what caused the general strike in, in Britain in 1926, the idea that um, it didn't matter if your, your um, goods weren't selling, you just you just cut wages, cut prices and get out of the, uh, the problem. It's just not, not that simple in the real world. I think my view of the global picture is that um, there's going to be some countries which um, will grow, um, big emerging economies like China and, and India, which is just fairly insulated from the financial um, crisis, and I see other regions suffering much worse than the rich countries. So this is smaller emerging economies, um, either because they became very indebted externally um, or because they simply don't have a domestic market to support their own growth um, until uh, the West recovers. So I think historically, although it's very hard to say things historically in this crisis, emerging economies are both more volatile and take longer to recover from a crisis um, than rich economies. So I think the global economy will begin to probably chug along next year so long as there isn't another round of a banking crisis, but it will be driven by big emerging economies. Um, and, um, and we may well see the Western economies, after they sort out their banking crisis, um, begin to uh, slowly to recover. And I think that probably raises another issue um, that has been uh, bandied about, which is when the Chancellor talks about, and coming back to, to Britain, but I think the same could be said for um, the US and uh, Western Europe, is it likely that Britain will return to a trend growth rate of two and three quarters percent? Or was that driven in the last decade and a half um, by things like the financial sector, which is unlikely to resume its, um, its place 
um, in in uh, in the economy, or perhaps you two think it might resume its place in in driving um, GDP. We know the <coughs> Chancellor in the budget said that. 27% uh, of all tax revenues come from the financial sector and he expects that won't be uh, the case going forward. The independent think tank, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, projects that Britain has a structural deficit now equivalent to 0.4% of GDP, nearly £6 billion pounds of a whole every year because of the fact that the financial sector isn't going to be the driver going forward. So I just talked about China and India growing at a fairly good clip, um, but in the West, will we be growing at a very good uh, clip back to what we were before this crisis? Well, the long-term trend rates of growth you know, have, a, have a history of being very, very stable. And they are stable despite the fact that in the UK, there have been very large sectoral shifts. So we have been moving into manufacturing, out of manufacturing, into finance, maybe out of finance. Um, you know, there is something very difficult to buck in these kind of long-term trends. So, yes, it may be the case that that the financial sector is not going to grow anything like as fast as it did in the last few years. But of course, one of the consequences of the financial sector growing as it did was that other sectors were squeezed out. And of course, if the financial sector is not performing that particular function, then other sectors uh, will grow. Uh, people do indeed think that, of course, if the financial sector is not uh, earning large uh, export revenues and propping the exchange rate up, then this, of course, enables manufacturing, which has had a rather hard time of it in the past few decades, uh, actually to pull back a bit. So, yes, I th I'm not sure that it's very easy to, um, to make predictions about the long changes in the long-term trend rate of growth. And I don't think economists have predicted them very well in, in the past. But merely, I think, because the, the particular sector we have relied fairly heavily on for a few years is, is not going to do very well, isn't necessarily going to mean that the, the trend rate of growth is going to change by that much. Yes, I, I think it's certainly possible that uh, um, the UK economy, as with other economies, uh, can, can recover it onto a, a sustainable long-term um, rate of growth again. Uh, but I think it is going to require a diversification of the economy away from the financial sector. I, mean, I think the, the Chancellor is right about that. And actually, this has long been recognised as a, a problem for the UK economy, uh, the peculiar nature of it being so um, dependent on the financial sector, which has created two problems really. One is, as Martin said, other sectors get squeezed out in all manner of ways in, in terms of uh, um, investment or people. I mean, at Oxford University here we see a lot of our brightest graduates who would expect to go, in other countries would go into um, manufacturing and uh, business services and so on, going into um, the financial services sector in order to, to um, develop incredibly complicated financial instruments so they'll be able to sell to people around the world knowing they wouldn't be able to um, understand them. So there is that the problem about the, the UK economy needing to diversify into new manufactured sectors. I mean, this doesn't mean old industries, but the, the green uh, technologies and so on. 
And the other um, long-standing problem which needs to be tackled is, is therefore the relation between uh, the financial sector in the UK economy and the manufacturing and the other sectors, which has been quite peculiar in the UK. In other economies, Germany, other economies, um, the financial sector developed historically in order to um, service and support uh, the manufacturing sector, the rest of the economy. Um, whereas because of the history of the British economy, that's not what the, the City of London was there uh, to do as far as they saw it anyway. They had, you know, um, bigger fish globally to fry um, than that. And there have been all sorts of commissions of inquiry set up over the, the years and the decades to investigate, you know, what could be um, done about, about that, whether British financial institutions were starving, um, British manufacturing companies of, of finance, which is interesting given the, the credit uh, uh, problems um, companies are, are suffering at the moment. Um, but interestingly, the conclusions anchor on balance over the years has been it wasn't so much that the UK financial institutions weren't providing um, finance to, to British manufacturing firms. It was the nature of the, the provision was quite different from elsewhere. So in Germany, France, Holland, uh, J Japan, the banks would, would provide finance and would take a real interest in that company and might, would give certainly very long-term loans, maybe even um, take equity in the, the industry, put on a non-executive director on, on the board, uh, whatever. Whereas was Britain, it would be very hands-off. They'd just say, oh yes, have an overdraft and that would be it. Which, which allowed some inefficient industries to, to carry on without um, having either the financial sector or the, the government sort of um, um, pointing out that they needed to, to be investing in new technologies as, as was happening um, overseas. But it's also very risky because it meant at the first time of the downturn, those overdrafts can be withdrawn you know, overnight and those companies can be bankrupted, as has been witnessed again in this recession, as it always is in recessions. So I think you know, the, the UK economy um, can recover, but it does need a, a diversification away from the financial services sector to the uh, the real economy, manufacturing, the, the new developing, in fact, developing new um, green technologies and, and other manufactured goods. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I think rich countries have to keep on top of skills and innovation and technological progress. That's how they sustain um, a good long-run growth rate. Um, and I suppose that's uh, probably a good uh, point to, to end this podcast is to say, Hopefully what this crisis has done is uh, caused that diversification in the British and also probably the American economies and uh, caused them to uh, take another look at the mix of what constitutes uh, the drivers of their economy. And there's no reason why we should expect a falling standard of living um, so long as talent and, um, and the right incentives are in place uh, to keep the economies innovative and, uh, and creative. I am intentionally trying to end this on a positive note. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we'll stop there.